Did you know that this Congress has signed 177 bills into law, which incorporate a total of 573 bills and resolutions? Wait, I thought we were one nation divided. You told us that Newt Gingrich ended civility in Congress. We are, and he did. And we've spoken before about the sausage-making legislative process, the curse of the filibuster, and other quirks that make it very difficult to get anything done, especially in our procedural fuckery episode. Right. And then you fixed everything with your big Summer of Legislation episodes. Oh man, I forgot all about that. We covered like 5, 7, 19, yeah, like four whole bills. I feel smarter. Me too, 99. Wow. A2, Mane. I will admit that I did not see the Inflation Reduction Act coming. And even with all the mansion and cinema giveaways, I'm impressed. But it did get me thinking. Democrats and Republicans say and do a lot of things to insult one another. And the further apart they get on culture, war, and identity issues, the more feverish their respective bases get. Democrats are typically able to claim the moral high ground and show grave indignation while blasting out mass emails and spamming for dollars. Like this one from Nancy Pelosi on September 22nd. Subject, humiliating defeat. I know you're getting a lot of emails, but please... Don't delete this. Don't ignore my message. Don't give Republicans the satisfaction. Because with Democrats completely neck and neck in the polls, getting complacent is exactly what Kevin McCarthy and Mitch McConnell want you to do. Or there's this one from Chuck Schumer on September 16th. Subject, asking for $10. Everything we're fighting for, gun safety, climate action, abortion rights, protections for LGBTQ plus Americans and more has never been more urgent. But if Democrats lose one single Senate race this fall, we could lose all our progress. Could be worse. For example, this email from Ted Cruz. It sends us money, my precious. Cancun we must travel. We need sweat from the Donald's balls. Actually, Ted Cruz is on the stand-up circuit, and I'm really happy for him. You know, and look, okay, I, all right, I get it. I understand that they want to send checks to illegal immigrants. I got that. But by the way, you know, there's a new politically correct term for illegal immigrant. It's called undocumented Democrat. <laughs> That's not a laugh track, by the way. That's a bunch of Virginians knee-slapping and guffawing at arguably one of the most reprehensible and disgusting humans. But that's where we are. While Dems are bowling for dollars, Republicans are as well by ginning up the base. But they have very little to talk about now, so it's still all border crisis, critical race theory, transphobia, and that Dark Brandon is responsible for global inflation. They're making a fortune on both sides. You also had people that were very fine people on both sides. What we don't hear about are the bills that pass without much debate or any debate for that matter, in cases where the House and Senate chambers suspend the rules and move for unanimous consent. Don't get me wrong. I wholeheartedly believe there is a great divide in Congress as reflected in the nation. Or is it the other way around? But I also think there's a lot more wink-wink, nudge-nudge than meets the eye. I know what I mean, know what I mean, nudge-nudge, know what I mean, say no more. 
Here's my working thesis. I believe in the divide, but I also believe that a great deal of it is performative and baked into the culture of fundraising and business as usual. Because when there aren't points to be scored, Congress still possesses the ability to maneuver legislation without triggering the attack dogs in the media. If there truly was a divide, like the one they sell us, then bipartisanship of any form would be as rare as a Trump tax return in the wild or a synapse firing in Lauren Boebert's brain. So I thought it would be a useful exercise to comb through all of the successful legislation in the 117th Congress and select some key examples to see what it tells us about the political class of the United States. When the world is a mean and nasty little place, finding the truth can be a little tricky. Don't go punch yourself in the face, just listen to an unfucking quickie. Unfucking the Republic is brought to you by overcaffeinated members, Corinne G, Jennifer S, G Wookie of Ohio, Goat, Eric Wagner 101, David MJ, Corey S, Cindy S, Brian, Awesome A, Asoke, Alpha and Flash, and Asshole. Hey, it's been a while, so a quick refresher. Quickies examine three seemingly unrelated topics. They typically build on prior episodes to illustrate ongoing themes and narratives. So today, we're going to look at three bills that had nearly universal support in Congress to see what bipartisanship can tell us about what matters most to our leadership. Before we get into the first bill, however, let's limber up and get loose with a little warm-up before we hop into bed for a proper quickie. I just want a quickie. The first bill is Senate 1404, referred to as the Ghost Army Congressional Gold Medal Act. Manny, do we have a clip on this one? What's it all about? Yeah, no doubt. Here you go. The dead do not suffer the living to pass. So basically, Aragorn is outnumbered and has to call upon the Ghost Army to fulfill their oath and break free of a curse in Lord of the Rings. Manny, please. (sighs) Sorry, fine. Check out this clip from Voice of America. Across the river from Dusseldorf, the view from the air reveals hundreds of American vehicles. Intercepted Allied radio transmissions confirm the presence of two American divisions. German observation posts hear them moving in across the river. Only nothing of what the Germans heard or saw was real. It was an elaborate ruse, one of many that a small group of American soldiers staged to distract the enemy. They were called the Ghost Army. So that's the real deal Ghost Army. Turns out it was a bunch of cool artist types from all over that were in a special unit designed to make shit up to fake out the Nazis. They had inflatable tanks, huge sound systems that played artillery noise, and blow up tents that looked like buildings. They would literally stage these elaborate fake mobile divisions that looked like full battalions, and it actually worked to divert German attention from real invasions. Love it. The primary sponsor of the bill is Ed Markey, along with original co-sponsors Republican John Kennedy and Democrats Bob Menendez, Chris Van Hollen, and Elizabeth Warren. Here's the official summary. Quote, this bill provides for the award of a Congressional Gold Medal to the 23rd Headquarters Special Troops and the Signal Services Company, known collectively as the Ghost Army, in recognition of unique and highly distinguished service during World War II, end quote. So you know it's a noble cause when you've got John Kennedy and Liz Warren co-sponsoring the bill. Now, this is one of those examples of a bill passing by unanimous consent. So no wrangling, even though there actually was an earlier version of this, but it wound up being updated and incorporated into the successful one. It basically got pushed through for Biden's signature. 
I'll leave a link to the history of the army in show notes because it's actually a really cool story. All right. Our second warm-up bill is H.R. 1448, known as the Pause for Veteran Therapy Bill. 99, this sounds like it has you written all over it. Because it has a cute pause acronym in it? Can you be any more patronizing? Just help me out, will you? Fine. First off, here's my clip. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Gina. Hello. What kind of job is this dog doing? Oh, well, this is Hercules, and Hercules is a service dog. Hi, Hercules. Yes. Hi. <laughs> Boy, that sounds important. Uh, what's a service dog? Oh, um, a service dog is a dog that works with people who need special kinds of help. Right? Right? Okay, the long title for this one is Puppies Assisting Wounded Service Members for Veterans Therapy Act, or the Pause for Veterans Therapy Act. Quote, this bill requires the Department of Veterans Affairs to implement a pilot program to assess the effectiveness of addressing post-deployment mental health and post-traumatic stress disorder through a method where veterans train service dogs for veterans with disabilities, end quote. That's good stuff. So multiple studies have detailed the myriad mental health issues that plague our veteran population. So this initiative, to be tracked and measured over a five-year period, is designed to help improve quality of life the ability to re-enter society, and increased chances of survival, as death by suicide is one of the biggest issues returning combat veterans face. The bill was originally drafted by former Congressman Steve Stivers of Ohio, and it died in the previous Congress. It was resurrected in this one and had a whopping 317 co-sponsors in the House. And rounding out our stretching exercise is a bill about a flashpoint issue from earlier this year. Pictures are emerging today from the border where the Biden administration has been sending pallets of baby baby formula for illegal mothers and their babies while American mothers and babies cannot find baby formula. I really wasn't aware that mothers could be illegal. Fascinating. So it's illegal to choose not to have a baby and illegal to become a mother. Anywho, that's Rhodes Scholar and resident genius of the house, MTG, talking about the baby formula shortage earlier this year. We're looking at H.R. 8351, signed into law over the summer. Here's a quick summary of the bill. Quote, this bill provides through December 31st, 2022, duty-free, <laughs> duty, treatment to infant formula. During this time period, articles of infant formula shall not be subject to, one, any additional safeguard duties that may be imposed under subchapter 4 of chapter 99 of the harmonized tariff schedule or 2 any other import quotas tariff rate quotas additional duties or any other duties fees exactions or charges that otherwise would apply to such articles importers shall provide the applicable and anticipated tariff classifications for articles of infant formula on applicable customs entry documents end quote this was actually sponsored by my main man from Oregon, Earl Blumenauer. And you know I love me some Bloomin' Blumenauer. Oh, you know what we should do? We should get him for our phone-a-friend for the marijuana legalization episode. What do you think about that? Sure, we could also get him to try to bring back the Bloomin' Onion to Outback. Is it gone? I think so. Why would anybody ever go to Outback again? Why did anyone ever go there to begin with? Why do you keep saying that? Saying sick burn after a sick burn makes the burn even sicker. So this bill had 28 co-sponsors, was introduced on July 13th, and passed by the 21st. Lightning fast, because it was such a fucking no-brainer. Amazingly, even though the House opted for a suspension of the rules, which means 
This is easy. Let's just fucking pass this. There were actually two Republicans who voted against it. Otherwise, it was unanimous, and it passed the Senate in its full form. One of the two holdouts is career ass nugget Louis Gohmert. He'd railed against an earlier infant formula bill, complaining about funds going to the FDA or something like that, but I couldn't find his rationale behind voting against this one. But I did find this clip of him talking about children. I hate kids. UNFTR is also sponsored by our overcaffeinated members, W. Jeremy D., Specker, Sam C., Ryan F., Rodrigo G., Rob Nasby, Prof G., Pete M., Nathan Surst, Nathan E., Nettie Hugger 1, Michelle H., Matthew, and the memory of Nettie McGee. Rule 1. Protect the free market at all costs. All right. Let me tell you about a good bill. I mean a solid bill. If you believe in the power of free markets, that is. And according to the vote totals in the House so far, nearly all of them do. It's called the Securing a Strong Retirement Act, or SECURE Act for short. Quote, this bill makes various changes with respect to employer-sponsored retirement plans, including providing for the automatic enrollment of employees in certain plans and increasing the age at which participants are required to begin receiving mandatory distributions, end quote. The House bill had two original co-sponsors, Richard Neal, a Democrat from Massachusetts, and Kevin Brady of Texas. All told, the final version actually had 103 sponsors. There's a previous version of the bill that went through the ringer in 2020, but it didn't make the cut. And there's another version of it that will likely be incorporated partially or in full into the final bill as it makes its way to the Senate. Importantly, this isn't law yet, as it only recently made it out of committee, in this case, the All-Important Ways and Means Committee. The committee gave it hearty support and, and this part is fascinating to dig through on fuckers, referred it in a nearly 600-page report. In case you're wondering what takes so long for large-scale bills to make it through Congress, well, here you go. Again, it's linked in show notes in the event you ever want to take a look at the sheer volume of moving parts and considerations that are baked into the process. It's pretty neat. So this bill is a companion of sorts to an earlier bill that stripped away barriers to implementing retirement plans. But as far as I can tell, it didn't move the needle all that much in terms of boosting enrollment to qualified retirement plans. But this one, this one has some substantial teeth to it, a surprising amount actually. First off, the bill would mandate that all employers with more than 10 employees offer a qualified retirement plan a 401k or 403b for nonprofit employers, to all employees and that new employees be automatically enrolled. I'll say that last part again, automatically enrolled with a 3% deduction to go toward their retirement. Contributions could be systematic, hydromatic, ultramatic. Contributions would be automatic. It also does something really smart. Because it mandates every employer provide a qualified retirement plan, which is an administrative fucking nightmare, by the way, it is also providing funds to cover any costs associated with implementing these plans. And that's a good thing. But wait, there's more. Oh, a whole lot more. It also allows seniors to dramatically increase their contributions. See, right now, the level you're allowed to invest in a plan is capped because these are pre-tax dollars, and the original idea wasn't to allow really wealthy people to just sock away pre-tax money. But Congress recognizes that we're in the midst of a retirement crisis, with more than 40% of Americans claiming they won't have enough money to retire. 
And that lines up with stats that show that 40% of seniors currently exist only on Social Security. And dig this, even though this has been piloted, it was never official. Student debt matching, just like 401k matching, will be formalized and authorized. Now, importantly, this isn't law yet, as I said. In fact, the Senate is working on its own version of the bill, so there's a lot of work to be done to pair the two and move them through to the president's desk. Although there are many who believe that this is a 2022 thing due to the overwhelming bipartisan support the bill enjoys. So what's the problem here? Nothing. If you're of the belief that retirement in this country should be tied to gainful, lifelong employment, and if Congress is any reflection of this sentiment, there were only five nay votes and 12 abstentions. 414 members of the House voted for it, and it apparently has broad support for the paired bill in the Senate. So if it comes up for a vote this year, it's likely to hit Biden's desk for signature relatively soon. So I want to reflect for a moment on Social Security and do a callback to one of our earliest episodes titled The Beatification of Ronald Reagan. In that episode, we covered the rise of a Washington gadfly named Alan Greenspan, who would become one of the most influential figures in the back half of the 20th and the early 21st centuries. What made Greenspan the darling of the Reagan administration was a plan that he conceived to ostensibly lower taxes on the wealthiest Americans while Reagan was delivering 11 straight tax increases to the working class. Yes, 11. The Gipper is often remembered in revisionist text as the president who cut taxes. Well, he wasn't. In fact, he was one of the most prolific tax hikers in history. Greenspan's idea was to create a cap on Social Security deductions. Now, the cap does increase every year, but essentially everyone pays into Social Security until one reaches $147,000 in wages in today's dollars. After that, the deductions stop. Most Americans don't think about it because most Americans don't make more than this. And that's what we call a regressive tax. Essentially, the highest income earners in the country stop having Social Security taken out of their wages in the first quarter. A billionaire might stop paying in January. Now, Social Security goes into a trust. It's, it's not really a trust. It's more like an accounting trust. But for argument's sake, let's just say that it goes into one giant pot to be distributed to retirement-age people for the remainder of their lives. Let's also remember from our episode titled Immigration Nation that some $13 billion a year goes into the same pot from false Social Security IDs of undocumented immigrants who will never receive the benefit of these deductions. So on a per capita basis, these funds are made up predominantly of working class and immigrant wage deductions. Then, calculations are made as to what the trust can actuarially afford to pay citizens in retirement. The average payout, again, in today's dollars, is around $1,500 per month. 40% of retired or soon-to-be-retired Americans have to figure out how to live on $1,500 a month. So the government is looking for ways to obviously augment these figures because it knows that this is untenable. It's an actual crisis, and it prevents tens of millions of people from retiring with dignity. It creates more stress on families and children, robs tens of millions of people from passing along any generational wealth, which is how the majority of wealthy people in this country accumulate their wealth. It drives up the cost of health care and end-of-life care as quality of life suffers in these older years. So if you believe that the only way to guarantee a dignified retirement is to augment the base of deductions that come from wages, 
then you are both a believer in the free market and a non-believer. Because you obviously understand that the market on its own is incapable of accomplishing this, thereby necessitating government intervention to prop it up. Hey, and fuckers, I know we're in the middle of our fall trifecta razor looking to grow our audience, do a little fundraising and some hell raising in support of Mandela Barnes and Summer Lee. But I wanted to remind everyone that the easiest way for coffee drinkers to support the show is to purchase our native roasted coffee in partnership with the folks on Poospatuck Reservation in New York. Head roaster Amy Wallace and her roasting machine, affectionately known as Big Mama, are gearing up for a busy winter roasting the very best organic, fair-trade, shade-grown, bird-friendly coffee that you've ever tasted. I know there's a bunch of other pods starting to offer their own special blends, but this is the only one that actually introduced you to the roaster. Last year, we featured Amy and her uncle Harry Wallace on an episode talking about the importance of native sovereignty and what it's like to be native entrepreneurs. So. If you drink coffee, all we ask is that you drink their coffee. They roast four distinct blends for our show. Unfuck your morning, unfuck your afternoon, a decaffeinated unfucking, and my favorite, Mellow Maynard, named for our beloved John Maynard Keynes. Because, well, Yo, fuck Milton Friedman! So just go to unftr.com and click on the Shop Coffee tab. Thanks. When you boil it all down, what does a man really need? Just a smoke and a cup of coffee. Rule number two. Protect the war machine, even if we don't have our own war. We're going to make the second and third rules of this quickie actually quick. They pertain to the business of war. And make no mistake, it's a business. Our original hot take on the war in Ukraine was that NATO had been unwittingly laying the groundwork for a madman like Putin to justify an invasion of Ukraine through his propaganda channels. President Biden's off-the-cuff remarks that Ukraine may someday be part of NATO set off a chain of events behind the scenes in the Kremlin that gave Putin cover with his people that an invasion was a necessary defensive maneuver against Western aggression. Then his propaganda machine went into full force, painting Ukraine as a nation of Nazi sympathizers. So several unfuckers hated this take, despite my assertions that correlation in this case did not imply causation, and that Putin made a huge and evil miscalculation all by himself. He's a bloodthirsty bit player from an economic standpoint, merely looking to cement his legacy as a strongman over a rather weak nation of lawlessness, oligarchical rule, and corruption. No matter the take, it left the United States in an awkward position of having to support Ukraine's war efforts despite the absence of a formal alliance in NATO. As the war drags on, it's becoming increasingly evident that Putin did indeed overestimate his own capabilities and the resolve of the Ukrainian people. And a significant part of this failed equation has been the Biden administration's balancing act in terms of military funding. And that brings us to the second rule protecting the war machine at all costs, and the Ukraine Lend-Lease Act. 99, what do we got? Quote, the Ukraine Democracy Defense Lend-Lease Act of 2022 temporarily waives certain requirements related to the president's authority to lend or lease defense articles if the defense articles are intended for Ukraine's government or the governments of other Eastern European countries affected by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. 
for fiscal years 2022 and 2023, an agreement to lend or lease defense articles under this bill shall not be subject to certain requirements and provisions that typically apply to such lend-lease agreements, including a requirement that generally prohibits a loan or lease period from exceeding five years, end quote. So this bill started in the Senate in mid-January and was quickly passed and sent to committee. It finally emerged from committee in April and was basically fast-tracked to Biden's desk with the House voting on the Senate bill with bipartisan co-sponsors and support. Ultimately, only a handful of ultra-right-wing Republicans in the House, such as MTG and Butthead, voted against it because they've got their own Russia conspiracy thing going on. But on balance, it sailed through with 98% approval from 414 House members. So there are a few ways of looking at this. Russia's cold calculation was monstrous and in violation of international law. Have we been guilty of the same thing in the past? Yeah, like a lot. But our transgressions don't make this specific case of military support wrong. Do I still find it offensive that we failed to muster any attempts at a diplomatic solution to this crisis by calling the world to the table to beat back Putin's aggression? Yeah, sorry, not sorry. Just about the only country that stood in support of Russia was Belarus. Did we levy sanctions on both countries? Yes. Did we voice our disapproval loudly at the invasion? Yes. Did we gather friends and foes alike to present a unified front against this unhinged dictator with a mixture of global sanctions, red lines, and plainly stated threats? Not really. Would it have mattered? Dunno. Now, are the Ukrainian defense forces maximizing our supply of weapons and cash? It appears so. Are many Ukrainian and Russian citizens dying as a result of this war? Absolutely. Is there a clear winner in all of this? Yeah, we are, far and away. Our military-industrial complex is feasting, and one of our primary perceived foes in the world is suffering loss of life, wealth, and face. So through this lens, thumbs up for America. But if preservation of life and finding peaceful resolutions to global conflict is your jam, then recall the words of George Kennan, who instructed American foreign policymakers on the psychology of Russian leadership. More than anything else, Russian leaders look to save face. And if they lose standing and reputation in the eyes of their people and the world, they act out in horrific ways. It's a delicate balance, because we have a history of understanding the downside of appeasement. And I get it. On the flip side, I worry about what comes next as the rat retreats further into the corner. But this much is certain. If you want to understand what makes America tick and see bipartisanship play out in real time, look no further than the funding of the war machine, even if we have nothing to do with the war at hand. Oh, and just for some context, seeing as how we are apparently united in our defense of global conflicts and violation of international law, here are some key highlights from a 2022 report by the Institute for Security Studies a nonprofit that seeks to peacefully resolve conflicts in Africa. The recent terror attack in Uganda reflects the threat that violent extremism will continue to pose to Central Africa, East Africa, and the Horn. Although instability preceded the war that began in November 2020, Ethiopia's conflict has since gained impetus and intensity. Bringing the belligerents to the negotiation table is an absolute priority to stop the bloodshed and sustain any chance of a peaceful settlement of the conflict. The Central African Republic, CAR, has been embroiled in conflict for several years. Developments indicate that it remains trapped in an intractable cycle of violence. 
South Sudan will be another country to watch as it enters the final year of implementing the 2018 Revitalized Agreement on the Resolution of Conflict in the Republic of South Sudan. Despite progress, much remains to be done to conclude the transition within the allotted time and end long years of suffering for the South Sudanese. Over the last five years, the conflict in North and Southwest Cameroon hasn't received the attention it deserves from regional and continental actors. What began as protests over poor governance and marginalization turned into a deadly insurgency. This has caused many deaths, upended the lives of thousands, and created a humanitarian crisis, all of which could have been avoided. In 2022, Africa will also continue to face the threat of violent extremism and terrorism in the Sahel and Lake Chad Basin regions, East Africa and the Horn, and Mozambique's northern province of Cabo Delgado. So, I get it. Russia bad, Ukraine good. War is messy and hard decisions must be made. And as much as I'm willing to meet people where they are, I'm no shrinking violet. So before you hop on your high horse and lecture me about my belief that we're obligated as the world's preeminent superpower to leverage our position in the world by exhausting every avenue possible to avoid war, then you better fucking bone up on what's happening in parts of the world where white people don't live. Rule three, protect the war machine, you know, in case you want to start a war. Lastly, and I'll make this quick, incorporating provisions from 54 other bills, we have the National Defense Authorization Act, which passed with 85% approval in the House and 89% approval in the Senate. It included $31 billion of new spending over the next decade on top of the nearly $800 billion proposed. And the proposed bill for 2023 includes new requests from the Biden-Harris team to bring next year's authorization to $813 billion a year. We've covered defense spending before in our Climate Industrial Complex, Violent States of America, and Priorities episodes. It's hard to ignore considering the size of the budget. And when you add in provisions for homeland security, veteran spending, nuclear security and maintenance, and cybersecurity, the figure easily balloons to $1 trillion annually. A trillion dollars every year pouring into the war machine for new weapons. To maintain the nearly 800 bases the military controls throughout the world. To guide arms deals with some of the worst and most nefarious regimes across the globe. Every year, the budget increases, despite the fact that we are technically not at war with anyone, anywhere. Over the past several years, Congress has actually awarded more than requested by either the White House or the Pentagon. There are bases scattered strategically throughout the United States that support incumbent congresspeople. There are military contractors who make fortunes and oftentimes can't spend the money fast enough. This is who we are. This is what bipartisanship looks like in America. Under all of the bravado and talking head segments on broadcast media, behind all of the punditry and outrage, the things that we agree on tell us a great deal about who we are and what we stand for. Free market, corporate greed, and bloodlust. The conflict surrounding identity politics? Pure theater. Subterfuge to get you to look away from what's really going on. As we head toward the midterms and into an unknown future, I wanted to pause and put this out there to remind us all what really matters. 
Congress is filled with actors and charlatans feigning outrage in public while quietly dealing from the bottom of the deck in private to do the bidding of corporate puppeteers that determine who gets to retire with dignity, which global conflict we deem to be worthy of our money and might, and ultimately, who lives and who dies. Here endeth the quickie. It's the end of the episode where we used to do show notes. Now we just talk through a few things. Reflect on what was said or what we should have done instead. Oh, post-show musings. Welcome into post-show musings. Me and 99 chilling out midweek. Taking a little pause from our informative, instructive episodes. I feel like we've been on a pretty long run of doing some history and... You know, doing some deeper analyses of dysfunctional things in our in our midst. Yeah. So you just had to bring up the most dysfunctional thing. Yeah. Well, I feel I, you know we started the the show mm, nearly two years ago with a few test episodes. Really got cooking about twenty months ago, I would say. And those early episodes were really filled with I, I feel like more outrage. But as as I've gotten deeper into the process and as I've gotten, I guess, more clinical in the approach, we still have some fun. There's some tongue-in-cheek parts. There's times in the bring-it-home sections that, you know, we, we get our outrage on and, and try to really push through why things are so important. But I feel like I almost, I feel like I kind of got away from the, hang on one second, this is fucking bullshit kind of mode. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think because we need to have a healthy mix. Yeah. People don't just want outrage all the time. I think that's a lot of the feedback we get is that you're not just yelling into a microphone that you're angry. You're educating people on why the things are happening this way, why they should be angry and what they can do about it. So, But I guess I don't want anybody to confuse that with apathy. Like, we're just going to take a clinical approach to this. We're just going to lay the facts out as they are. Isn't this oh so interesting? This is why we need to get engaged. I think sometimes... I just feel the need to raise the fuck this flag and be like, hey, by the way, this is why we fucking do this. And we can argue vociferously about Ukraine and we can argue about, you know, where our money Let's should go. Let's not. <laughs> I know. I, I, and, I don't, and I don't want to. But I also don't want to back down from challenges either because we should be challenging one another. We should be having spirited dialogue so long as we are meeting everybody where they are and then they need to meet us where we are because we're, we are doing the work. So is Ukraine a just endeavor? Yeah, I think so. I really do. Because was it likely that we were going to cajole China to come to the table with us and present a united military front and say, hey, bucko, back off? Probably not. My assertion has always been, you got to try. You got to work the back channels. What the fuck is Tony Blinken doing? Because Blinken up until this time and his predecessor and Pompeo and and just go I mean go all the way back through they've all been sort of setting up this you know this kind of faux controversy and and conflict with China and so that really probably wasn't in the cards I just like to exhaust those things you always have to exhaust those measures before you just say hey here's a bunch of weapons we're going to pay full fucking retail price for them and ship them on over and make the war machine wealthier and wealthier while people die. It's it, There's no easy answer. It's all very frustrating to me. 
and the angle of bipartisanship demonstrating truly who we are I just got caught up in this mindset over the over the last week as I was ruminating on this and putting it together to be like wow it's 500 some odd bills that were incorporated into these nearly 200 bills that passed and they keep telling us they can't get anything done well unless it's just totally partisan and we got to have the numbers and it's got you know what in a divided congress in a united congress in a filibuster proof congress they they seem to always be able to get this shit done so this is who we are and i don't want to lose my sense of outrage at the underpinnings of the of the sheer violence that architects our national identity you know what i'm saying mhm so anyway that's why i wanted to pause and do this quickie this week on fuckers I, I can't even say I hope you enjoyed it. I just I hope that it was okay to kind of let it out, kind of just let the air out a little bit and uh, and and just get after it. So lots of good stuff coming up. Won't belabor the point. And so that's a wrap for this week. 99, anything you want to leave the unfuckers with? Nothing super new, just, you know, the reminders, fall raiser, funds, friends, hell. Share this episode with people across the aisle. Say, hey, look, everyone's fucked up. (laughs) And uh, what can we do about it? And also, I know we've been loosely, cryptically teasing, maybe leaving Substack one day. Don't worry. We're not going to get rid of our content. We're never going to gate the content. We're just looking into alternative solutions for where to host it. But it'll still always be free because that is part of our ethos. But keep supporting us. You're doing a great job. You make our days. You know, join the Facebook group. So All much the fun things over there. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. And not just fun. There's there's some real stuff happening over on that group, which is which is pretty great. Our thanks to Knutson and a number of other supporters that continue to curate the content over there. I uh, know uh, Knutson doesn't like the spotlight and he always uh, you know mentions the people that are putting some effort into it. So we appreciate all of you for doing that. Definitely share hop on board Twitter, by the way, because those numbers are are beginning to grow. Slowly but surely, we're starting to get out there. So we'd love to see you over on social media. As always, I want to thank Manny Faces behind the glass for doing the voodoo that he do. 99, I want to thank you for everything that you do. And anybody that wants to learn anything more about the show can just go to unftr.com. It's all right there. See you next week.